It's Pride Month. What are we proud about? And what's really going on with the church? Is the church innocent or naive when it comes to the situation with the LGBT agenda? A little bit of a note here. If you have children in the room, this is not content that we would recommend children consume. However, it is uh, going to be directly related to what children are being exposed to every day. Let's talk about it as we, as we watch our culture stray further every day. What you believe about God dictates how you will think. Our philosophies dictate how our culture behaves. Politics is simply the enforcement of cultural norms. The truth claims about God, philosophy, culture, and policies will affect what we value. When these things are in alignment, revival is possible. Well, hello there, and welcome to Further Every Day, the podcast where we explore current events through the lens of the Christian worldview. Today in the Chair of Theology, we got Jennifer. How you doing? Good. How are you? Doing well. Glad to have you on, dealing with the reason why we believe what we believe, and moving to her left. We got Mr. Charlie sitting in the Chair of Philosophy. How are you, sir? We're doing great. Glad to have Thank you there. Thank you very much dealing with the reasons why we believe what we believe with the rigor that must be applied to a scriptural rubric. Very good. And to his left, we got Winston. How are you? How do you do? I'm pretty good, but I forgot to take photos of the food. So You forgot to take photos of the food. So <laughs> we, we actually just had a amazing grub he killed it with in Winston, the <laughs> and he spent two hours making, you know, it was, it was going to be like a, like an hour and a half, and then it took two hours, but oh my gosh, it was worth the wait. Uh, Winston is racially ambiguous, but once you start to taste the food, you know <laughs> where he's from. Uh, guess in the comment section down below, where is Winston's family from? Oh gosh. <laughs> just make things a little bit <laughs> spicier. This is how you get doxxed. <laughs> And to, he's in the chair of culture today, dealing with the culture that has sprung up and the counterculture that the Christian must bring to face it. And to his left, we got uh, Mr. Steve again. How are you? Hey, man, I'm doing fantastic today. I'm going to work this chair today, buddy. Work in the chair of politics. Glad yes, to have you there. And yours truly sitting in the chair of economics. There is a value system and a value structure at play. Uh, and there is value in following God's word, not from a pragmatist standpoint, but God didn't make stupid rules and there are consequences. And we're actually suffering a large fallout in our culture today in the West from a lack of scriptural accountability in the church. Uh, so just to recap, obviously, if you uh, don't live under a rock, you do know that this month is the month that the most LGBT activity uh, that ever goes on in a year is going on. They call it Pride Month. And I, I just want to start by throwing that around the room in, in, in just a moment. But we're, we're talking about innocence today. If you read the title and description for the podcast, one of the things that we really want to split open is the difference between innocence and foolishness or innocence and naivete. Uh, just gonna go around the room real quick on the issue of pride. Chair of theology, when Satan comes with a lie and he wants to plant it into our heart, what does it show on its face as a lie or is it always covered with a guard of truth? Well, it's certainly not, uh, he, he doesn't come and say, hey, listen, you know, this is going to come with um, 
some lovely sexually transmitted diseases and, uh, you know, high suicide uh, rate, high rates of depression. Doesn't that sound like fun? That's not what he does. You know, he says that this is going to give you the opportunity to, to be who you truly are, to follow your heart. But pride is, is uh, you know, the the sin of all sins, and so to speak. You know, it's pride Someone goes before a fall sin. and a haughty spirit before descri- before destruction. Pride is uh, what what led Satan to fall. He wanted to be like God. He he felt in himself that he was worthy of that. He he had that pride, and uh, it it has led to nothing but but the chaos that we see around us. Nothing but pain. Yeah. So moving over to the chair of philosophy, I want to get into the head a little bit here because this is something that I think that we as Christians sometimes we 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 miss. We're we're very reactionary because we want to live our lives in peace. But you look at the philosophies in the way that that Satan has set up these counterfeit goods because you should have value in yourself. You're an image bearer of God. But in Pride Month, when we're focusing on uh, deviant sexuality, when you're dealing with deviant sexuality and you're taking pride in that, what has Satan done? He's 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 kind of traded and done a bit of a bait and switch there. Do, do you want to kind of tease that out for well, us? There's definitely a, a bait and switch. And one of the things that I was thinking about while you were posing that question is that What's really interesting is that, especially in this particular topic, where we're talking about homosexuality and in the in the different things uh, going on within the the pride arena, um, it he really weaves it together with the other aspects of what we talk about. And I'm talking about culture. I'm talking about politics, economics. You know, um, one of the things that I think is really important to understand is that on the surface it sounds like it's it's not injurious but when you start digging that's not true and so just to sort of you know spoil the 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 milk a little or the cake a little bit here the surprise you know we're supposed to be wise as serpents harmless as doves we're going to talk about that in a little bit we want to make sure that we're we're sniffing what we're taking in before we take it in whether it be the food that we eat. By the way, Winston's a great cook. Uh, smelled it for a long time. Oh, it was good. Uh, I thought the kitchen was going to burn down, but um, with all the steam, but it was tasty as all get out. Uh, you want to know what you're consuming and what you're taking in. And Pride Month has a lot of pitfalls. So we're going to go over that. I want to move to culture, though. When we have a culture that has taken pride in something, it, it, it has exalted itself against the authority of the scriptures what happens to the value structure of that culture once you remove the overarching standard bearer of god what is going to happen to the value structure of that culture well i mean we uh, i always like to think of the roman empire um there's i mean it became a very hedonistic society um, where hedonism was the norm. Um, I always think whenever we, we begin to hold our own opinions over what the Word of God says, which the Word of God is absolute and it's permanent thing, we begin to allow uh, a, a temporary, uh, temporary idea of rules 
to become something that we walk alongside. And the issue there is that they're temporary and they're probably going to change. You've created a secondary arbitrary standard. And that's something that fails and that's something that falls. And we see that when culture is enforced by the political structure, moving over to the chair of politics, when you have a moral structure that is composed on the faulty, loose framework of a relativistic moralism, what kind of political structures do we eventually see rise to uh, enforce the protected classes and the morality of the culture? Oh, well, in politics, you end up having politicians in order to to get people and money on their side is they stand up and support issues that relate to that particular type of group of people, say LGBT, and they will move mountains, so to speak, to make things happen or let's say um, laws, put laws into effect that specifically go towards this particular group of people. Now, it's not like we don't have laws that are on the books that protect people, but they're going to make they're going to make laws that specifically go against something against a gay person. Okay, hate crimes, for instance. We have hate crimes, but it's against a specific group of people. A hate crime is a hate crime. doesn't matter who it's against. doesn't matter if it's against a specific ethnic group. It doesn't matter what the instance is, whether your, uh, your background, whether your uh, religious preference, doesn't matter. A hate crime is a hate crime. And then you have politicians that'll stand up and say, well, we all support you in what you do. Who in the world are you to stand up when you're off and say, let's say California, for instance, you know, going to speak for me here in, let's say, specifically Texas. You're not speaking for me. And what inevitably happens with a relativistic moral worldview is exactly where you're going, is you have a government structure that is now enforcing not a godly rubric for justice, but one that is specifically targeted at defending or going on the offensive for or on behalf of those special classes. And that's where you right. see regimes develop. When you say eat the rich, when you say praying for someone who has a same-sex attraction struggle is conversion therapy and therefore is a jailable offense. Not joking. We've talked about it over and over again on this program, but that's happening today in Australia, in Canada, in these places that, that, that are westernized societies. We're watching freedom erode. And then again, I want to go to the economic chair here, just from a, from a note here. When you have devalued 
the word of God, when you have broken all of the, the walls that God has set up around things like sexuality, what we're talking about today, you now have a situation where innocence is at a premium. Take, or rather, someone's sexual innocence is at a premium. Being able to take that is now at a premium. And it is something that people will come, there, there will be vultures that come and they will prey upon the weak because we have forsaken the godly structure and it's leaving us open for attack. And we're going to talk about what that attack looks like and what these victims are struggling with today. This is a long lead in, but I want to start off by asking a good question here. At least I think it's a good question. What is biblical innocence? So I want to create a rubric for this. I want to look at the Bible and see what God says. What is innocence? Because sometimes we think about it as virginity. Sometimes we think about it as a lack of culpability in the, in the, in the court of law. But what does innocence mean to God? And what does God think about naivete? I want you to hold these two thoughts in your mind as we read some of these verses. I'm going to ask Jennifer to get Matthew 10, 16. If you can get Matthew 10, 16, Mr. Pomeroy and um, Winston, you can see the next one's coming up. If you can get 10, 16 when you're ready, Jennifer. Yes. So Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So that, that word harmless in the Greek can easily be translated as innocent. It's akieros, uh, okay? That can easily be translated as innocent, harmless, simple, plain-faced. You, you, you don't have a duplicitous nature and you're not, you are who you say you are. You're yeah, living I like, a godly um, structure. One of the um, definitions that I have in my um, sort of Greek interlinear is unmixed or pure. Yes. Chaste is another one. Chaste is another one. Innocent. We want to be innocent, but also wise as serpents. I, I, I want to go a step further in just a moment, but Daniel 6.22, Mr. Charlie, if you can go ahead and get that for me. Yeah, My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lion's mouths, that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Okay. Daniel, was he innocent in the eyes of the law, Mr. Charlie? No. So that's important. That is an important note. We're not talking about a court of law innocence. We're talking about something else. We're talking about something else. So if I can get Winston to get 2 Corinthians 7.11. Alrighty. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. And all, all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And that word clear, hognos, also means pure, chaste, or innocent. It also means free and clear in a legal sense. But this is a different kind of court, isn't it? Mm. When we talk about innocence, so I, we're going to use that word a lot today. We had to define that term because it, the English language is a wonderful language and, and words are contextual. 
But when we're talking about innocence today, we're talking about being righteous before God, but also being clear on what God has said. And I'm going to make an argument here today, and feel free to disagree with me, if anyone who does. But I think the church has been naive. We have been naive. It, the difference between innocence and naivete, Adam and Eve were naive in the garden. They had not done anything legally wrong, but they were not innocent in the righteousness sense of innocent. When they disobeyed God, they fell to sin. When we are not clear on what God has said, and when we're not clear what the enemy is doing, we are in a dangerous place. So what does that dangerous place look like? Well, and the Bible says the, the fool will pass on and be punished, whereas the wise foresees trouble and avoids it. We look in Proverbs. So where does that put us? Well, the Pride Parade this, this month has been quite a spectacle. And just some of the things that have happened there, if you go ahead and throw that, that, that cut up there, uh, this is censored. But what you're looking at is deviation on the highest level. I mean, I, I just want to throw that around the room. When we're talking about preparing kids for this, I want us to think about this. It's not the question, but we got to think about how we're prepping kids to face this world. But first off, from a theological perspective, if someone comes to you and says that, it, for those of you who didn't really catch it, because we had the block over that, that is a 12-inch long strap-on that Christina Aguilera was wearing while thrusting and making motions with a transgender person on stage, wearing a, a devil outfit on there. She had all sorts of other things I don't even like to talk about. It's ugly. But from a, from a theological perspective, if someone comes to you and says, hey, love is love, let them be. What they do in the bedroom is none of your business. Uh, what do you want to do? Throw gays off the rooftop. You know, you, you, you'll, you'll hear this sort, of, this sort of push. Theologically, how do we defend against things like what we're seeing at the Pride Parade, the depravity? Well, first of all, I would say that this is clearly not being kept in the bedroom. This is being promoted as kid-friendly pride parades, bring your kid, it's a family event. So that would be number one. But I think the heart of your question is how do we defend um, these assertions that we're making? And I think it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning is the fact that innocence does not mean that you're naive about these things. This is something that, that Charlie often brings up in class is how do you tell a counterfeit bill? You have to have a certain knowledge of what a real bill looks like. So how, how do we look at, we look at this and, and we say, this is wrong. How do we know that it's wrong? Well, we have to know what's right first. Where do we get that? From the word of God. And, and to speaking specifically about the church, what have we lost? We've lost the standard. We're not teaching the Bible anymore. We're not showing kids. We're not giving them a firm foundation of, of what it means to be uh, sexually pure and, and that's not just the homosexuality issue. That extends to all areas of sexuality. That extends to all areas of morality. We are losing, uh, we have lost the, um, the conviction. We've lost the conviction. And we're not passing it on to our children. And we have raised a generation of people who are confused. And they're confused because they do not know the truth because we have not told them.
That is beautifully stated. That's that's very eloquently set. And what I want to do is I want to, this is a really good segue over, is just as helping great segue over to the chair of philosophy. I want to pull this out because can you have a good philosophy on Bible stories that are just stories? Can you have a good, let's build this, I'm going to build this and then, then I'm going to let you go. Bible stories that are just stories. A church that does not live up to what they say they believe. When you do not have a biblical foundation and the only people who claim to have it are not living it, what does that do to the philosophy of the next generation? Oh, it, it totally warps it. And, and before I go any further with that, I, I want to read this out of Webster's 1828. Please do. And, and it's not, it's a long definition, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. I want to capture the one, the one key point. When applied, we're talking about the definition of philosophy. When applied to any particular department of knowledge, it denotes the collection of general laws or principles under which all the subordinate phenomena or, flat or facts relating to that subject are comprehended. Guess what you can't do if you don't have a biblical worldview. That, that's why what she said, it, it was absolutely spot on. And when we don't have that, our philosophy becomes so screwed up because we've lost our point of direction. We've lost our point of reference with truth. We don't know what truth is. For a philosophical proof, right. you have to have two, at least two statements. You have to have at least two statements that if both are true, at least a very common uh, philosophical proof will be you have two statements. If both are true, then the conclusion is true. If they follow, if it's not a non sequitur, as long as the two statements follow, then the result is true. If we do not have the one and the one, and we only have the plus and the equal sign in our equation, where does that land us? Nowhere. You're, you're truly lost. There's no way to com compute something like that. So that brings us to an interesting point where after we've lost a good grounding in our theology, there's no theology. If there's no good theology, then a good biblical philosophy is hard to come by. You're basically shooting in the dark. What we've ended up with is an interesting culture. And I, I just want to go to the culture here and kind of shore this up and dig this out. When you have a church without a theology and a philosophy, what does that do to the church and its culture? And what does that say to our culture? Well, you're just like everybody else. Um, you And, well, you're actually worse than everybody else um, in the same way that, like, a tax collector will forgive another tax collector and there's not there and nobody's going to throw two uh two hands up in the air about it if you're claiming to be a christian but you don't follow it at all every and you go around your workplace and say yeah i'm a christian i go to church on sunday and they see you at the club with the boys on saturday you're you're not a christian you're less than a christian now um because you're not even fit to uh, wear the same robes that they do um and uh in a matter of speaking you've You've destroyed any possibility of reaching out to them and helping them. Um, you are a firefighter with absolutely no training. You just wear the costume. Going to the strip club doesn't help. You're a, you're a, you're you're a, a firefighter a, with no water. 
You're yep. a LARPing Christian. It's like all these people who go out there and they have stolen valor. Yeah. You put them no in a real firefight. left in the church. And they have no, they have no biblical training. And I, I want to be careful how, how we do this. I, I don't want to come off as worthy. You know, we've, we've done everything right in this room. Everyone in this room has made mistakes. Everyone yes. in this room has failed in some way. Why we go to church, Tom. It's why we, it's why, it's why we're going is to grow. And so that's what we want to start to do is encourage you to be part of bringing people into the church, partly by knowledge, partly by evangelism. We want to inform folks and say, look, we need to be more rigorous. We need to be on the lookout and we need to know what they're doing. We need to be prepared to give an answer. Apologia. We need to know what we believe, why we believe. Because if we don't, if we don't, we end up with a political structure that's hollow. And I want to go to Mr. Steve here in the chair of politics. When we have a hollowed out church, a hollowed out philosophy and hollowed out church culture, when candidates run and they, and Christianity becomes a prop, doesn't it? Oh man. Yeah. Um, the one thing that we need to do as Christians is be involved in what goes on, whether it's the politics of your country, whether it's the politics of your church. You need to know what is happening. You need to be involved. You need to be able to, you should be going to, say, like the meetings of your church, your financial meetings, the end of your month meetings. You need to know what's happening. You need to, when you have uh, any kind of political things that are happening, you need to be aware of what's happening. Before you vote on anybody, you need to research their background. You need to know what they stand for, what their ideals and their ideas are, what where they stand on particular subjects, uh, what laws have they voted on if they're rerunning for election, who they have that supports them financially. If you've got, say, like people that are being supported by LGBT, transgender people, and you're against that sort of thing, and they're saying one thing, oh, we're not going to do this, and we're not going to do this for that, and I'm against having this in school, but yet here this last time they voted for having it all in school. Wait a minute. Um, didn't you just vote for this in the last session that you were in and you're supporting this coming up and this bill coming up and your name's on it? Wait a minute. Um, I don't think I'm going to vote for you. If it mattered. And I'm not giving you money and you're also having this group of people and you're taking money from these groups of people, but yet you're saying you're not going to do Wait a minute, you're, you're contradicting yourself. If it mattered, we would do that. Correct. If it mattered to us, we would do it. And that comes That's down called to having a standard. Absolutely. And you've got to have one. And it's called a biblical you, standard. And it's not being naive. You've got to know what's happening, man. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and our, and you're and lost. our, our you're government lost. Is, is losing that standard. They're falling down. Not only that, they're falling away from the standard and the godly principles that this country was founded upon. 
Absolutely. And so what, what you end up coming to is a society that values nothing. In fact, the only thing that is valued is the temporal, the moment of gratification and the moment of self-actualization. Self Can't talk today. Self-actualization. Those kind of that's, things like that get me worked up That's a where bit. we get to the point where <laughs> your value as a human, you've demoralized, you've dehumanized and demonized the church because now, and we've done it to ourselves, because we have not held a standard. We've not held it. So, of course, the world is going to go to a nihilistic worldview. Of course, if this, if we've talked about this over and over again, if the structure does not hold value, perhaps then it should be torn down or it should be reformed. I'm not advocating the former. I am advocating the latter. We need a reformation. We need a modern-day reformation of back-to-fundamentalism. And part of that in this new information age is knowing what the facts are. We're living in a world of fake news, of disinformation uh, boards. We're, we're living in a weird world. We need to be like the Bereans, showing ourselves approved by study. So one of the most important things to remember is what are the consequences of not just biblical literacy, but acting out in sin. And we're starting to see them. Jennifer. Yeah, I just want to say on that point that um, the biblical literacy is the key point. We're not saying that you have to go out and immerse yourself in the perversion that is going on nowadays. I mean, we, we put a a disclaimer about children, probably adults shouldn't even be looking at this stuff that much. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty graphic stuff and, and you don't have to, I think you're actually doing yourself a disservice if you put your focus on understanding the perversion of the world. We don't, we don't need that much of that. We need, right. we, we don't, again, don't be naive about, you know, don't, don't say that it's not happening. But the point of the whole dollar bill thing is the the analogy about you have to know what the real thing looks like so that you can spot the counterfeit rather than studying every possible way that a dollar bill can be counterfeited. The knowledge, the biblical knowledge and the biblical foundation is what you need to focus on. And when you have that, you will be armed against whatever perversions. This whole, you know, transgenderism, sexuality with kids, this may not be the issue of the day in 20 years it's going oh, it to be something be. new new there's nothing new under the sun but if you have that foundation and biblical knowledge you'll be ready for that also and that's and that's exactly where we're going with this and what you'll find and we've, we've said this over and over again on this podcast say the enemy of your souls does not make up new lies mm -hmm. he just repackages them for the culture in the society in which he is re-injecting them it is always yea hath god said it is always yea hath god said in some variety and there are packs and groups of them and one of the first ones that that or the primary one that we're going to look at today is that yea did god say are you made in his image and did he make a mistake 
And that's what they do. That's where they come after vulnerable people. And in a JAMA study, not, not too long ago, there was a, I think it was 2001, JAMA uh, came out and they had a, it's really a survey. It was a poll and 50% uh, roughly of people said, yeah, I feel better. I've not had a suicidal ideation in the last month uh, uh, or in the last year. I felt better since my transition surgery, by the way. Speaking about things that you shouldn't look up, but maybe you need to, go look up what bottom surgery is for transgenders. Go look up what they do to a male. Go look up what they do to a female and tell me that that's healthy. And, and we're going we're gonna to talk about one or two people's stories tonight where it, we're not going to get too far into the gritty. If you want to go explore, links in the description. Go so at your own peril. But I think it's important to know. They'll, they'll say that, so many people are happy one year, a couple months after, but there's a problem with that. That's a, that's a month or a year. When you look at abortions, people are happy with their abortion until 10 years later. That's where you see it hit. That's where it nails them and the suicidality bumps through the roof. Guess what? It's the same thing here. In fact, I actually want to throw this at Jennifer if you want to take it. There's the Sweden study, and it, it's just those two paragraphs in uh, uh, quotation marks. But in Sweden, the trans movement has been running like wild since the 70s, 80s time frame. And so we have a lot of data points here in the States. It's really hard to nail down those data points. But uh, this is out of a Swedish study. Links in the description below. Uh, go ahead and hit that real quick if you could sure so the study this is quotation now the study identified increased mortality and psychiatric hospitalization compared to the matched controls the mortality was primarily due to completed suicides but death due to neoplasms how and many, cardiovascular disease was well, increased how many more times i was going to say were, that were we more likely to read that <laughs> yes 19.1 fold greater than the control population in Sweden. 19.1 yeah. times more likely to commit suicide as a tra transgender. Keep going. Yes. Uh, so that, that increase was uh, primarily due to completed suicides. But death due to neoplasms and cardiovascular disease was increased 2 to 2.5 times as well. We note mortality from this uh, patient population did not become apparent until after 10 years. Pause for a moment. Jennifer, you're a nurse. Mm -hmm. When we induce unknown variables in the human body, it, it are the effects apparent immediately? It depends what it is. Some things are immediate. Some things are not. The point is, you, you, you do not have a guarantee. Just because something doesn't immediately happen, you no don't clue. Know. Cigarettes. I smoked a cigarette. I didn't get cancer immediately. Problem solved. Problem solved. Sample set hey, of one. Fine now. Yeah, sample I mean, size one. Okay. Keep going. Please keep going. The risk, the risk for psychiatric hospitalization was 2.8 times greater than in controls, even after adjustment for prior psychiatric disease, 18%. Okay. So it goes on to say that male patients are more susceptible, this and that. Point being, point being, why would you encourage this? What, if you have a 
just shy of 20-fold increase in suicidality in a population that should be on the DSM-5, why would you go and cut, go under the knife, when you have 40% suicidality and it doesn't change after the surgery? Just to, 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 to go there for a moment, and, and let, let's go there. Let's, let's, let's dig in that for a moment. Because for the individual, I think some of it is a lack of informed consent. Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the, um, the graphic nature of some of the things that can end up happening when you go through these kinds of surgeries, the physical pain, the lack of functionality that you were promised is not talked about. It is not, it's not allowed to be talked about. To talk about those things is, is to be hateful of transgender people. If we warn that, that, hey, you know, I mean, I'm not even going to say some of the stuff that can, there, there are, you can look up some of the, the, I, the I side effects. I will. I'll, I'll carefully control this, but there is a threat, link in the description below, from a guy in the, in the UK, uh, goes by the handle Tulip R, okay? I'm going to be very selective about what I read here because this is graphic, but this is someone's actual experience. You have someone here who says his entire region where it was operated on, this is a guy who transitioned as a female when he was 24. He's 35 now. He has detransitioned back to a male, but he had full bottom surgery. And just so I'm not being coy with the words, that's a euphemism. They cut up his body and they rearranged the parts and they didn't even finish stitching it back up. He says that he has holes that have never closed, wounds from sutures that have never closed. Guess what they, Chair of Economics here, guess what those doctors didn't care about after he was out of their care? They didn't care about him. If he could heal. They didn't care because if they did, they would have talked to this 24 year old who was suffering, who could not be comfortable within his own body. They would talk to him instead of using him for a paycheck. This guy, he, he still has to function as a human being. But when you take body parts like that and you cut them, you can no longer go to the bathroom without, in, the, in his case, he has to sit at the toilet for an hour sitting on the toilet and he can not get it to, he can't get it to dry up. He can't get it to dry up. And unfortunately what you're left with is someone who is without function, without form. Now it goes a full link in the description. If you want to read all the graphic details about how hair started to grow again, in that tissue, how things were damaged. Go ahead and hit that. But I want to go to the chair of culture for a moment. When you have a culture that does not value godly principles, is it not a natural progression? 
for us to devalue this person to just a paycheck and to just leave them on the sideline. Couldn't you even get a culture? I'm giving you some of my chair here. Couldn't you even have a culture that has an economic incentive to push people into transgenderism? Yeah, whenever we were discussing innocence at the beginning, the, uh, the whole idea of innocence is a, uh, th- there is a price on it, and the price is paid mainly, uh, mainly in advertising. Um, if I can advertise to you, I can take that from you, and I may only need you to spend two seconds of your day. You don't even need to pay anything. You just need to look a certain way. Mm. And that's the way it is going to, uh, to downtown sometimes. Um, they're getting more and more graphic on the billboards. And it's, it's become a, uh, a normality to, uh, I mean, not only adults, but to the children themselves. Um, it, that's why, I mean, uh, as we stated earlier, uh, the, uh, the de- or not the desire, but the inevitability of nihilism, it seems, in our, at least my generation, and most definitely the generations afterwards, if nothing changes, is that, yeah, you, nobody really cares about you because everybody's just trying to sell you something. If you can't buy it, well, get out of here. That's that's not my problem. My problem is to pay the bills, and if you can't aid me in that, that's that's too bad. But I don't. Uh, you're not really my problem. You're almost looked at as a a paycheck. Yeah. As opposed to a human. Yeah, you're, you're walking dollar signs. Uh, you make money, and uh, if you don't give that money to me, well, I don't really need to talk to you. I mean, your problems are your problems, and I don't want to hear about them. And you know, John Arthur, I think one thing that is important for us to note here, this individual is really, he's living in a very tough spot now because this is something he's living with for the rest of his life. This is not changing. But here's the wake-up call for the church, and this is where we got to pay attention. If we're not careful, we take an attitude of, well, hey, got what he deserved. No, 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 no. Mm -mm. This is a situation where he got lied to. And where was the church on this issue? Absolutely. Where were we? Where were we? And that's always where it comes down to, where were we? We need to be watchmen on the wall. if the watchman on the wall sees the Trump, enemy coming. And you know, on, on, th- on a political uh, end, why don't we have um, our preachers at the podium talking about the biblical issues, just like the things, the, the verses that we discussed and read earlier, how come these things aren't being discussed? How come that things of this nature aren't being brought up and being discussed on issues? How come they're not being taught in Bible study instead of just the same thing that goes on every single time, but just in a different way year after year after year, you're being taught and going over the same kinds of things every year? These things need to be taught, whether it's, you know, to to the high school level or any level in the church. Maybe you don't want to get into super graphic things or, or a lot of things with the young children, 
because they need to have a, a part of the naive part in them still. But the adults, up to an older age, these things need to be taught to them. Well, and that's just the thing. And, th- and that's where we're advocating. And we're, we're, we're going to get to it in a little bit. I want to, I want to, that, that is the final note of this. But before we get there, we got to do a bit more. It's not about knowing how many lies there are, because there's an infinite amount of lies. All you need to know is God's truth. And Amen. the problem with the church is that she's become complacent. She's become right. complacent. We do not meet the culture where it is because we're not a discipling church. We're not even an evangelistic church anymore. And I know that Winston wants to say some stuff on this because discipleship is where the church really ought to go. We do want to catch one more story before we get too deep into the discipleship, but go, Winston, go. The Well, one of the biggest issues is that we're teaching commentaries and not the Bible. Oh, man. Right oh, man. on. Exactly. That's been my complaint. I love, by the way, if you do Bible study, I love my Tony Evans, right? I love David Jeremiah. I love these preachers. But if you are not digging into the word, word, I, I have met 70-year-old men, 80-year-old men who read just a simple devotion by Tony Evans and go, oh, wow, that's some powerful stuff. And you can tell that, and it is, but you can tell that's the only depth that they've ever gone. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't chew on the word, if you don't consume it, put it back out, bring it back in, you are missing a blessing. Are you going to heaven? If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you've submitted your heart to him and you've given yourself over and you're walking underneath him, you're saved. But are you growing the way that you could? Are you going to be a 30-fold, a two-fold, or a hundred-fold? What are you going to be as far as the seed that he's putting out there into the world? Now, on the note of dealing with the issues of the day, there's another really good study. It's hard to find these studies in America because, A, it's recent, like Jennifer was alluding to, when you have a new situation with drugs. It's hard to know. But by the way, some of these drugs are, uh, what is it? Is it Nupron? I'm trying to remember the name of that one drug that's Lu- used to- Lupron. L- Lupron. It's used to chemically castrate sex offenders. That's what we're giving to children. Okay. But you've- But it, it magically becomes reversible when they're kids. When they're kids. Although it's supposed to permanently castrate an adult. Yeah. And, and so, there's absolutely no time on showing the long-term effect of these things. Correct. And they're not FDA approved for using what they want to be done on kids. Absolutely. So in the last few years, we've started to see what the effects are. And there are no studies on this but there, per se, but there is a Heritage Foundation study that is really interesting. Link in the description below. They've got some really great graphs. But as we've seen, go ahead and put up, I believe it's uh, cut three. It's the uh, mortality. Uh, 10 year mortality. As we've seen the increase in, as we've seen the increase, uh, actually, that is the wrong one. Go ahead and pull it down. It's the graph. It's the graph. Go ahead and give us the graph. As we've seen the increase in availability of these quote unquote cross sex hormones, yes, 
you've seen a dramatic increase in suicidality in the states that offer it to children and even more so to the ones that offer to children without parental consent. So certainly not conclusive, but definitely something that needs to be addressed and looked into it, and not swept under the rug. That, that would be it, on the radar. And, and, and it's, again, it's, it's not a good study. The Heritage Foundation study is not a good study, but it's the best data that we have on the, on the subject. It's literally what we have. I'm not accusing the Heritage Foundation of something wrong here. I'm saying they're dealing with zero data and they're trying to find at least a corollary with the suicide rate. And we're watching the suicide rate go up at an astronomical level just with this new experimental treatment. And we see the corollary. We see the corollary in places like Sweden. We can see that it's following us. So this is really where I want to sort of talk. And we're going to talk about this next week. Uh, we're watching an issue of rapid onset gender dysphoria. That's the Google results cut, if you can get that from us, Mrs. Producer. We're watching a rapid increase in the searches for transgenderism, cross-sex, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, ever since 2010. And by the way, this actually directly correlates with the suicidality graph that you saw on the last slide. So why are we not dealing with this as a culture? Well, there's a few reasons, but I'm going to start off with the chair of theology. Has the church done a good job providing something, anything for sexuality, or do we often have this, this don't ask, don't tell view of sexuality within the church? Well, we certainly have that. One of the things that has really bugged me about the church's take on sexuality is that we have, it seems to me, hyper-focused in on homosexuality. And every conversation about what scriptural sexuality looks like is in the context of, well, homosexuality is a sin. So is sex before marriage. So is adultery. So is a lot. The Bible has a lot to say on sexual purity and the certain context in which sex is appropriate. But if we start preaching on divorce and adultery, there's a lot more people in the church sitting in the pews that are going to stop paying tithes than if we just preach on homosexuality again. And what did Christ say about the moat and the bean, right? Yeah. And that's where we're firmly yeah. and, set. And, and it has really... Um, caused the church to lose a lot of credibility again. One of the most common things that I hear from people when I start talking about homosexuality is, is well, well, what about adultery? Because the standard is, what they expect is, that the Christian is not going to have a response to that. Now, because I've been blessed to be, you know, surrounded by people who've helped me grow in my faith, and I have a good church, and I have a good pastor, I can say, listen, yeah, adultery too. Put it in there. I'm cool with it. I'll talk about that with you too, but there's a lot of Christians that would not be comfortable having that conversation extended beyond just homosexuality. And that's the issue. And I want to take this over to the chair of philosophy. I want to move this over because Christians, we should be the kings and queens of sexuality. 
and, and, and some of you just jumped out of your seats. <laughs> you Philistine, I'm looking at you, you who just, your skin crawled. Put a sock, sock in it respectfully. I'm just going to say it. Think about what you're doing. When your kid says, Mommy, Daddy, what about X, Y, and Z? Are you going to interface with them? Are you going to go to the scripture and build them a rubric? Because I see people, I kid you not, had an apologist come to, to my church one time and the title was talking about homosexuality, you know, and the guy, the apologist, playfully titled it Sex in the City of God, making a reference from, you know, Sex in the City and the City of God by Augustine, saying, where do these two clash? I saw people turn in, they came in, these mature people, they looked at the, at the title and they turned around and walked out. Hold your horses. Listen. Listen. So when we go to our children, when our children come with these ideas, we don't want to tell them about a six-inch rubber appendage that Christina Aguilera is wearing on, on that. We don't have to go there. What do we need to do for our children to make sure they have biblical innocence? We need to, we need to embrace what is right. Where does right come from? Well, we believe that right comes from the Word of God. That's where we need to be a, looking at this from. And I think the point that that Jennifer just brought out is is really good. We want to condemn others while we ourselves are really messing up the whole picture. And what, all we're doing, uh, yeah, all we're doing is just shining the light on somebody else when we ourselves are having the problem. And, you know, I think that what is really sad in all of this is that just as I shared in our, our Bible study this last Sunday, run to truth. Run to truth. It's important that we as Christians do that. And sometimes when kids come and they have this, they, they, they've got a knack for doing this, they will come and pose a question that is extremely convicting. And what do we do sometimes as parents or you know, mentors? We, we want to run from it. We want to hide from it because it's embarrassing. We need to run to truth. We need to show them what's right and wrong. And we need mm -hmm. to be able to set them up. We need to prep them with a philosophical rubric that's based in spirituality. It's based in theology. And so once we have that, there's been a lot of attempts to create a different counterculture. But purity culture, Winston, is has become a serious byword. And I wanna I wanna sort of dig a little bit at that. But I really want you to kind of just tell us, dig in about the kind of culture that we need to be developing as far as, it, as far as sex goes, as far as godly sexuality is concerned for the next generation. Well, it needs to be discussed, I mean, as we stated earlier, in the home. Um, that, that's where it really needs to be addressed. Um, it, would, it would be great if we didn't have to discuss it in church and that could be just be done in the home. Although... I think you'd be missing out on a little bit, but we, well, one, we would necess uh, necessitate that parents actually have to know what they're talking about. Um, but not allowing that to be done. I mean, you've, I mean, most, most people are in the public school system. So you've been, uh, or you've relinquished or relinquished that right and given it over to some person that they're going to know for maybe six months to a year. And they're going to instruct them however way they see fit on what sex is. Um, that's, 
not only is that, I, I think, extremely dangerous, I think it's also extremely um, immature and just has every lack of forethought put into it. Um, it's, if you don't address it, it's going to be found out eventually by whatever means they have found it out by. And then that will in turn call, or that in turn will set into effect a, a chain of events that you have no control over what may happen within the, uh, what may happen within that timeline. There's no telling what what will come out at the other end because you have not decided what the uh, uh, what the control input it is. Now you can have whatever you make of it out of it, and that is so much danger because there are no bounds by it. There's no sandbox to it. It's Jack and the or not Jack and Box Taco Bell. Think outside the box. <laughs> and once you're going, your responsibility as a oh yeah parent. And once you're outside of the box, once you're outside of God's play box, you know, is it really intolerant for the blender manufacturer? I've used this over and over again. Is it intolerant of a blender manufacturer to say, "Don't stick your fingers in the blender, don't use it while in the shower," you know? Some simple thing. Don't put rocks in here. Don't put that thing there. It, it, it's that simple. It's not an issue of intolerance. It's an issue of setting up godly boundaries and standards as much for your protection as you have a moral imperative. You have a moral imperative. And when you build that culture that Winston's talking about, when you build a culture that's counter to the humanistic culture, that's where people can see the difference. That's when people can tell. That's where you're holy. Holy doesn't mean pristine walls and stained glass. It means set apart. It means to be different. And that's going to change if you have a culture that is holy, that is set apart. That will change how we enforce our laws. Moving over to the chair of politics, when we have a godly rubric for our theology, philosophy, culture, we're going to start to enforce the laws that are on the books. People are going to be mad at me, but I do not, I've said this over and over again, I do not agree with drag queen story hour laws. I don't think we should make a law against drag queen story hour. There's already laws on the books that put someone behind bars if they send a salacious text to a child. What should we be doing with our representatives when it comes to things like a drag queen prancing about children with, with sexual apparatus on? What should we be pushing for in regards to holiness as a culture politically? And need to vote them out of office. Need to get people out and get these people out of office and vote for the people that uphold the godly principles and get these Christians out to the voting booth. There are too many people that are Christians that don't go to the voting booth and they expect others to go vote their values. And, you know, it's um, what was it that you know, there's not enough Christians that they'll jump up and tell you, oh, we need to vote this way and need to vote that way. But a lot of them, don't, there, there's too many that don't go to the voting booth. 
Now, if I have a tendency to jump on my soapbox for too long here, John Arthur, hit me upside the head, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Now, and they're not voting their godly principles. They're voting for what they like, uh, like, say, worldly views when they go to the voting booth. Vote your godly principles. And it's like I mentioned before, you got to see what the people you vote for stand for who is or who what who funds these people where do they get their money from who are they accepting money from are they accepting money from people that you don't like or the organizations that you don't like whether it's uh, abortion places whether it's lgbt groups they're, if they're getting money from them and then they're saying they're going to vote against these items, you know they're not because they're taking money from these people. Have you at least looked? Have you at least looked at your local senator and Congress folks' track record? What are they doing? What are they doing? Because there are people who will say, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. And you know how he says, he'll know that he never... You, what was the outward fruit? The lack thereof. You didn't come to see me when I was sick. You didn't help the fatherless. You didn't come to see me when I was in prison. Guess what? God is a big fan of fruit. He wants to see fruit. We need to be like our father. We need to see fruit from our politicians. Right. If it's valuable enough to us, we will look for fruit in our politicians. By the way, writing them as someone who's who, who's been involved in in the political scene writing politicians on mass works if you ever do do a campaign like that however do not all sign the same letter make them different there are people who read them and as someone who has read affidavits who has read people's letters it makes a difference when everyone tells a different story it makes a difference. It makes an impact. It When you call or write, it does make a difference. Do it as a church. Do it as a body. If we valued our belief as much as we say we do, our relationship with Christ, we would put our money where our mouth is. And that's going to lead me to the chair of economics. Pastors, this is a call to you. Do you know who the first men who died in the Revolutionary War were. You know who was at Lexington, who was at Concord? You know who mustered out? Those were the congregants and their pastors. Where is the muscular Christianity that built this nation? If you are forfeiting that for a tithe, may I humbly suggest to you that God's power is so much stronger than those two or three or however many people's tithe are. Even if you don't make the same amount of money, God can bring things into your life. He brings the things that you need and that your church need. The 501c3, if I could do one thing in this nation, is I would get rid of the 501c3. If there was one thing I could do... 
you can get rid of it. By the way, 508 churches, that's becoming a thing. Look into it. Not a podcast on that. But look into tax-exempt status for churches that do not need to bow the knee to the government. We've talked a lot about that, but I just want to kind of go ahead and wrap up the day uh, going around the room here. Going to the chair of theology. When we're talking about the importance of building a biblical innocence, where do we go to find the structure for that, and how do we go about structuring it? Well, we go to the Bible, and something that I really want to impress on people is that we cannot expect a higher standard from the fallen world than we do from the church. Amen. I mean, we can we can be as indignant as we want about Drag Queen Story Hour and all of this stuff going on. But if we're not willing to hold our congregation accountable, then there's just, there's no, there's no reason to look outward. And until we get the reform that we're talking about, and we as Christians start to take our own sin seriously and not try to hide behind a, a veil of like, I don't know, some, some kind of weird idea of like, I'm okay because I'm a Christian and then, you know, I'm, I'm under grace, so I, my sin is okay, but yours isn't. It's just foolishness. Amen. Amen and amen. Moving over to the chair of philosophy. Closing thoughts and how do we build that rubric do we have to get our, I've had parents tell me, well, I have to let my child get out into the world and get sullied, not quite their words, I'm, I'm being a bit mm-hmm. strong here, and get sullied by the world so that they know what not to step in. Is that necessary in a biblical rubric and how do you fix that? Boy, I'll tell you what, that's an excellent question. And as a parent of five kids, I can honestly tell you that that road can be pretty tough at times. And... I would say this, that all of my kids are graduated, they're out, they're well into their 20s. And I will tell you that probably the most important thing that you can do, stand firm, stand strong on what is right. But, and this is going to be tough for moms, sometimes you have to let your kids fail. Just make sure you're there to help pick them up and love on them. And keep them moving. And sometimes that's what you have to do. Now, if you're talking about somebody that's just outright rebellious, okay, there's there's a little different avenue there. But I'm talking about a child that really wants to do what is right. Sometimes we're just locked in a particular direction. We're, we're just going to go a particular way. And when we fall flat on our face and we see, oops, nope, that wasn't the right way, then we'll pick them up, keep them, keep them going. I think you're referring partially to a principle-based approach to yes. raising children. When you go about a principle-based approach, do not tell your children because I said so. Tell your children, it's within my authority to say because I said so. And if I get a chance, as soon as I get a chance, I will explain why. I will always explain why I said so. If a child says, why do you want me to get out of the street when there's a car coming? 
you can't explain it to them in time. They have to be able to respond then. So because I said so is enough for your authority's sake. But afterwards, you need to pull that child to the side and say, I said so because there was a car coming, because there was an imminent threat to your life. Moving over to the chair of culture, I want to get your thoughts about building a culture of biblical innocence in the home and in the world. I mean, it, you can do what the Bible says. I mean, Titus 2 is pretty clear, or you cannot. Um, you call yourself a Christian, so you, you probably should do what the Bible says. Uh, that just seems to be a fairly logical conclusion there. Um, you say this is the Word of God. You say this is Jesus, and you've accept, accepted him as your Lord and Savior, and you say you follow him, then why don't you do what he's all about? It, it seems, and, and then we make complaints like, oh, why, why isn't everybody else doing it? Well, are you doing it? Well, no, but... If the culture is sick, maybe the salt that was meant to preserve the meat has lost its saltiness. If there's maggots in the meat that you set out to cure and jerk, maybe the salt has lost its saltiness. Maybe we need to become purifying again as a body. It only takes 0.3% or something to that effect. Don't quote me exactly. Someone's going to say, well, actually, it's a very small percent of weight of salt to meat, to cure and jerk meat. It takes only a little. This is something that was not lost on the people in Christ's time. That's right. Preserving meat with salt was a huge issue. Salt was a high commodity, commodity, and it was also used in trade. And as money. Absolutely. (laughs) So if you are to be that value, make sure that you have the properties of that. Make sure that we are a culture that is purifying, that is holding people to a standard, but more importantly, doing so by what we are. Salt works its way into the meat because of its nature. Because of its nature, it's transformative in nature. Moving over to the chair of politics, just wrapping up for the day. When we're dealing with our candidates, what do we need to do? Research, research, research. Look up what you need to do and then make sure you know what you're doing and get out and vote and know what is going on, know your issues, make sure they're godly people. I mean, our constitution and our country was founded on godly principles. Our, all of our rights were given to us by God, not by man. Though we are, can only be forgiven of sin by God, not by another man. Charlie or anybody else where I'm sitting cannot forgive me of my sins, only God. When I go to stand before Jesus, I'm going to have to answer to him, not anybody else. Amen. Make sure that we are walking circumspectly as though we will be held to account, because we will. God will wipe away every tear. 
but it also says that there will come a time where you will give account for the things that you said. It doesn't mean that God hasn't forgiven you, but just walk as though every thought, every action, every word is going to be accounted for. Walk that way. And as far as the economic concern is, guys, know that there is a industrialized complex. The medical industrial complex is coming for your children. Not doctors, not nurses. I'm not villainizing the medical community. I'm saying that there are people who stand to gain, whether it's Planned Parenthood, whether it's the trans uh, gender surgery individuals, there is a whole industry that has cropped up, not just in the medical community, but in the academia, et cetera. The list goes on. There is a political and a economic structure that is aimed at your children. Raise them wisely. Raise them with principle-based learning and be intellectually consistent. If you say that you believe in this Jesus, maybe we should act like him too. If you enjoyed this podcast, thank you so much. We uh, hope that you do a like, a comment, and a share. Sharing is the new caring. It is the rubric that uh, YouTube likes. We are on YouTube. If you've been listening for this last year, thank you so much. We're about 60,000 downloads as per this tape airing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your listenership. Go ahead and uh, tell us if we missed a story that you thought we should have covered. Next week, we're going to be talking about the, um, oh my goodness, I'm having a brain fart. I said it earlier. We're (laughs) We're going to be talking a little bit more about the same issue, go a little deeper, but we'll be talking about sex trafficking shortly thereafter. And we might have a special guest on about um, the humanitarian crisis in China. If you know someone you want to throw throw towards us on that, that'd be great. But we've talked to one or two people. Some good stuff in the works. Uh, like commenting, sharing, all that helps. Uh, comment down in the section below if you have something that you think we should cover. And if you didn't like this podcast, well, Jesus loves you. Thank you so much. That's it. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Uh, bye. Bye. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. There's one last thing. One last thing. And today we're going to do something very different than normal because I'm just going to switch the flip. And we're going to go ahead and do favorite flavor of ice cream. Oh, favorite flavor of ice cream. Uh, you honestly have to think about that? Wait a second. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Hold on. Okay. To, either, either mint chocolate chip or strawberry. Okay. Those are good answers. Those are good answers. Mr. Charlie. Millennium Crunch. It's not even a question. Millennium Crunch is pretty good. I will say it's high on my list. For for those that are listening, if you're not from the South, more specifically in Texas, um, Oklahoma, Missouri, some of the Southern states, you will not know what I'm talking about. That's Bluebell Ice Cream, Millennium Crunch. I promise you, you will be writing letters to thank me. It is good. Go ahead and write your letters down in the comment section below. <laughs> and moving on to Winston. It's either uh, mint chocolate or cookie two-step. Ooh, cookie Ooh. two-step is good. Ooh. I I, I, I don't dislike mint chocolate. It's good. But uh, yeah, that, that is tongue. a good one. Stop it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Steve. Uh, it's a bluebell. It's uh, vanilla and peach. 
Oh, vanilla and peach is like a cobbler. Mmm, that does sound good. There's a peach cobbler that I really like, and I would go with the strawberry cheesecake, also from uh, Bluebell. Bluebell makes Tillamook if you want a killer vanilla. Tillamook makes a killer vanilla. The strawberry cheesecake, Bluebell, one of my favorites. Tell us yours in the comment section down below and uh, get yourself ice cream doxed. We love you. Bye bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.